Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan? Doing great, Mike. Uh, Today's topic is going to be the Ethiopian Jewish community. Uh, This summer, it was in the news very... Uh, big protests against uh, police violence against the Ethiopian community. And so we wanted to talk, not really focus on that, but just a broader look into the experience of the Ethiopians now that they've been here for decades. And we have a very special guest today to give us some insight. Penina Agenyahu, who is the director of Synergy and Interfaces at the Jewish Agency, is also a prominent member of the Ethiopian Israeli community here. And she's uh, very, very graciously agreed to come and sit down and talk to us and like really tell us what it, what's what's going on here. Um, so I'll let uh, Penina introduce herself, and then we'll get going. Explain what it is she does. What does an integrator of Synergy do? I don't even understand those words, so... Okay, so two years ago, I came back from a long shlichut in uh, Washington, D.C., where I was a senior shlicha, and I worked really strongly with the leadership there, uh, with different traditional organization, about how we engage the community with Israel, which uh, required different type of interventions and strategic planning, uh, which brought me to my new position today, which I'm doing uh, for the last two years. And it doesn't really say much when you say synergy and interfaces, but basically what it's mean that we learned at the Jewish Agency lately that we have to create a synergic language uh, of what we do here to, as, as a staff, as an as organization with our partners. The main partners at the moment is the Jewish communities in North America. And they, uh, we partner with them with different types of intervention regarding to Israel engagement with different units, many staff, many programs, but not necessarily always tell the same story or showcase the way we engage with Israel in one platform, in one way. And that that's basically the idea of this position. It's to create uh, a, a one person that can be the contact person when you look at the macro and uh, and when you look at the partnership in uh, in the international way between Israel and the North American jury and what they do at the moment to engage with Israel and what we can do in order to help them to engage better or more or to straighten this connection. So there's many things going on from our side in order to do that. Uh, behind education, and partnership, it's also to think together with them as a partners, you know, which kind of efforts we need to do, what we need to change in order to, to function better, and also uh, learn from them what they do, what they know that we may doesn't know much. Now, as interesting as that may be for people to listen to the inner workings of the Jewish Agency and what you do, our topic for today is really to talk about the Ethiopian-Israeli community. So, Panina, this was a very... uh, The Ethiopian-Israeli community was featured prominently in the Israelis' news this summer, not for such good things. There there were massive protests against, mostly against really police violence and and uh, and discrimination against the Ethiopian Jewish community. Ken, so it's not the first time it's happening. Uh, let's say that it's the 11 victim, at least the way we see it is in the community and the way it's war- it, it's happened so far. Uh, three out of those 11, by the way, suicide. They didn't been killed by a policeman, but they suicide, you know, after some uh, encounters with policemen or investigation that end up emotionally in a very, very low situation for those people. 
And I think this time the protest, and I went to all the protests beside the, those that I was in the States, that I couldn't be there and support my community. But being in all the protests from 1996 with the, with the cases of uh, the blood, uh, uh, I forgot how to say it, blood donations, that I dropped the blood donation, uh, I never saw this type of anger. And this type of, um, disappointed, uh, a lack of trust in the society here. So in the past, if you divide it to the different generation, our, the older generation, our parents would protest really quietly, will go to negotiate with the Kesim, our rabbis, the leadership. Our generation, generation 1.5, we'll say the middle one, we will protest maybe uh, not with violence, but you know, with more stronger voice and we'll take the responsibility on our shoulders to, to deliver the right message. But this protest was a new generation. It's a generation of uh, uh, Israelis. They don't see themselves Ethiopians. They're all born in Israel, they teens, youth. And for them to see another case of police profiling, it's a feeling that it doesn't matter what you do and how much Israeli you are, or if you're born in Israel, the society or the institution still see you at the first as an Ethiopian. That's what they see, your skin color. And I think this protest was with a lot of anger, but also with a lot of uh, disappointed, really deeply disappointed of what else we can do in order for the society and institution to hear us, don't hear us. And unfortunately, it's end up with a lot of violence. But it's also when you take a team that trying you know, to, uh, to showcase something, even at home with my kids, when they anger, they can you know, throw something, they yell, they scream, and that's what happened. Well, there's a difference between going to a protest to change the way a democracy is behaving and, and, and publicly venting your frustration and anger, which isn't the same thing, even though that might be at the same Afghana, you know, like you're saying, the 1.5 generation might be standing next to the 2.0 generation, but they're doing a different thing. Yeah, I mean, I think where, where I sort of focused in on there was when you said Choser Onim, that people are feeling powerless. And when you're feeling powerless, this comes out. Right, it comes out as not as much change as much as frustration, anger. So where where is this powerlessness um, feeling coming from? I believe that it's coming from. I'll give you an example, okay? That usually I give to people, especially young people in in America, that we don't have the same privilege, unfortunately. When it, when a young Jew walk on campus and someone is protesting against of Israel, BDS or anti-Israel or anti-Jew, and you don't want to be related to those stories, you can easily take off the kippah, the Megan David, and you can kind of assimilate it or integrate it and look just in a typical American, right? No one can relate to you. They all, the responsibility of the entire Jewish people and the states of Israel, what do you do? We don't have that privilege as a Jew of color, of a person with color, okay? My skin color, it's on your face, first impression. So in Israel, I think this is the tiskul, the frustration of the young generation at least. They will say, I, I'm born here to two educated parents, okay? I serve in the army, I love this country. My name is uh, Neta, the most Israeli name ever, okay? Uh, but in the end of the day, when a policeman see me, you first of all see a black person, and all the, all the assumption that he have on that black person is appearing quickly. That's, so it's really, it's really make you uh, angry about it, because you don't have this privilege to be changed. 
maybe those kids want to be just Israeli. Maybe they don't want to even hold the culture and the background of the Ethiopian community, but they can't have this privilege of dropping that off. You always have to carry the all, the burden of the entire community. And it's the same way when something happened, you know, if an Ethiopian husband murder a wife, I remember when there was some cases like that years ago, you're always going to be the speaker for the entire community mm-hmm. when that to happen. So this is like the complexity, I will say, of being a minority by skin color, especially in this kind in these states, when we're supposed to be feeling the belonging to the Jewish nation, to the Jewish people, as every other Jew. But every other Jew that made the to Israel can change automatically the name, the last name. Maybe they will look a bit different since they're here, especially if it's a third generation or second generation that are born here. They will not look more Ashkenazi or more Yemeni. But in our case, unfortunately, we don't have that privilege. So, I mean, it's also, well, I hate, that, that makes that breaks my heart, <laughs> saying it's unfortunate. Do you think that an American listener, if they're translating what you're saying into the American issue with, the, with minorities, is it the same here in Israel? In other words, skin color, this, is it causing the same issues in the States as it is here? Or should our listeners understand that there are still differences? I believe, and again, it's my personal, I didn't do any really deep research on it. Well, you did live in the States. Yeah, live in the States and live here. I think it's different. It's still different. There's two layers of, of I would say it, not politically correct, being black here and being black there. I feel like in America, um, to be black, it's become part of the daily life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you see black people serving in different positions, right? So you get used to see black people. So maybe some of the people will still be ignorant about what black people can do in America and how far he can go. But I, I feel, maybe I'm wrong here, that the majority understand today that there is different type of people among the population of the black people. Unfortunately, in Israel, I don't feel like we're in the same, we have the same reality. I feel like here, there is still some assumption that based on what they know about a black mm-hmm. person 30 years ago, and it didn't change. And I think the easiest way is to give you a small story. When we were in, Amer- in Washington, my son, my older son, is seven years old today, he went to a Jewish preschool, the conservative one. And of course, he was the only black kid there as the only Ethiopian, Jewish Ethiopian family in that neighborhood. But he never felt different because no one around him pointed out mm-hmm. and showed him that he's different by his skin color. He, ha- he still had one of the teachers, a black person, African-American, and one of the guards was African-American, and one of the people in the clagery were African-American. But still, we were a minority in that synagogue, a minority in that neighborhood, a very Jewish neighborhood. But if you walk around, the kids, I'm assuming Jewish kids, knows because they meet some African-American all over, right? In Israel, we came back, and we live today in Modi'in, which doesn't have much Ethiopian family. There is, and I checked that already. That's one of the things that I'm usually aware of. There's only 20 Ethiopian families in the entire city. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's one of the largest cities in Israel, and it's one of the fastest growing cities so, in Israel. 35 years after I was the only Ethiopian child in my elementary school, my son is the only Ethiopian wow. child in the entire elementary school, which is... Uh, it's embarrassing to our, I think, society. But only here, and we were talking about it, me and my husband before we arrived to Modin, one of the things we were worried about is how he's going to be integrated to school when we knew he's going to be the only Ethiopian. We knew that he may going to face the same challenge we had 35 years ago. And we were wondering when it's going to happen, when it's going to come, 
when he gonna come and ask us why I'm different, etc. And it took only two weeks <laughs> since he arrived, you know, the preschool. Kindergarten, really. Uh, and, and the kids, and I, I, and I don't blame the kids, because kids are kids, but the kids start asking him why he's brown, why his mom's brown, why they brown, why we look different, and we're different. And we didn't do anything with that. But then when someone called him with a nickname, with a very offensive nickname, I already went to the teacher and the principal, and I asked them, what do you do in order to teach about diversity and people of color and different people? And the answer was, as educator, you will appreciate that. Her answer of the teacher was, well, you need to understand them. It's a new thing for them. Okay, so this is, I, I told this entire story just to get to this point to tell you. In Israel, it's still new for many people mm -hmm. to meet a black person or to understand that a black person can be a successful person. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think it's like, we've talked about this actually in the context of like Jew in America post-Holocaust, which is all of a sudden you, it was not polite to point out someone was Jewish. And that's, I think, where the black communities come in America. It's not polite to, yeah. uh, and in Israel, it, it's still, there's no consciousness of polite or not. No, you can talk about that. You can, you know, uh, there's no sense of diversity. If somebody's diverse, uh, it, it, it's free game, let's say. There's no sensitivity that you might be making somebody uncomfortable. But then people have a, a, like set of assumption about what you can do. And, and you know, I see myself as someone today that is very strong and I only today can understand how it's so important to be strong economically because it, it gives you a lot of uh, self-confidence. I'm in self-confidence that I didn't have also 20 years ago or even younger because I grew up in a single, a single uh, parent's home when my mom was struggling even to feed us, right? A, a very low socioeconomic family, but being in the position where I am today, strong economically and strong, you know, socially and with my career and everything, I'm, you know, I'm able to speak about this thing uh, without, you know, without feeling that I'm going down or, right. you know, being away from my own community. But just imagine that many, many of us or many of our community, when they walk around, that's what people think about you. And even when I went to my, you know, when I got my position as a Hilo director in Tel Aviv University, one of the first meeting I need to do as a director of the organization is to meet with the president of the university. Right to make sure that he know we exist, to see how we can collaborate with the dean with him, and you could tell by the way he looked at me when I entered the office that he wasn't thinking for a second that it could be Ethiopian person. Mm -hmm. And when he you know finished the conversation with me and was very impressed, he told me something uh, something like, "Wow, you're very impressing impressive woman. How come your Hebrew is so?" A clear and, 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 and good one. And I told him, well, maybe because I'm here since I'm three years old, <laughs> and that's the only language I know. I mean, in my own heart, it's even worse than that. Yeah. But why people assume those assumptions, it's because they, when they see Ethiopian, they, the, the thing they will think about you, it's you, Ole, Hadash, you always. Right. A new immigrant, never mind that he moved from. And you made Aliyah when you were. Yeah, when I was two years old, like 35 years ago. You don't remember Ethiopia at all. Israel's all you. That's what I know. So that's what, you know, having the state of mind of many of, of those teens that protest, that's what they feel face every day. When someone sees them, they automatically sometimes assume that they lack of knowledge, lack of culture, uh, lack of even money. They don't, they're not strong economically, which maybe, you know, if you look at the data, 60% of our parents are not employed, okay? So, Probably 
probably most of the homes that those kids coming up are not coming from strong uh, homes economically, which, which is fine, but they're struggling anyway. But if you meet someone that that's what he believes in you, how can you believe in yourself? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, oh my God, there's, I have so many questions. We could probably do a whole series here, but I, I like to go focus on your generation. So we saw the younger generation is now letting off this steam of, of frustration, out of the sense of powerlessness. I imagine you, as you do have tremendous presence and, uh, and all of those positive qualities that you mentioned about your position on that, um, your generation, do you have ideas, what, what are your ideas to, to create this kind of diversity, the sense, diversity, sensitivity, and, and uh, opportunities for um, the Ethiopian community? So we act- lately we have a, a great WhatsApp group <laughs> of almost 141 and every day there's someone else uh, joining of people that are in the public sector let's say like me there's not many of us okay but we collect everyone and we gather as a group and it was important for us before the protest just to start really filtering and brainstorming what you're saying what we can do as the metavchim as the generation that it's in between those that are struggling of their existence to the generation that Dormidbar as we call it desert generation that doesn't care anymore I mean they hear by the way they're grateful for every minute they hear and that's it that's enough they, they don't care if they have two rooms with ten kids it's not like for them it's not an issue that they don't have enough money for you know, the extra that others have but for us when you see those things from both sides we know for sure that there's so many things to do and we can't first of all we can't anymore be dependent on the government decision or government programs uh, something has to happen as an initiative from the community himself. Second of all, um, I think it's something about hakara, uh, recognition mm-hmm. of the community uh, regarding to our uh, Jewish identity. There is some sectors in the in, in Israel that you know question our Jewishness. Still uh, today. Still today, and they will not let their kids marry us okay i mean isn't that just racism is it really questioning jewishness is it just can it's 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 not just racism it's It's also that they're really question of are you really a jew but what what did i mean how did you function as a jew uh, in the village there in ethiopia i mean how bichlal judaism end up getting to ethiopia doesn't make sense judaism is from europe many people i'm not talking only about the ultra orthodox which they for sure doesn't recognize us but some secular some national orthodox still see that uh, in our case is um younger people I, I, no, I, older people older yeah. people younger yeah. people are going to be less yeah. like that right? less nahan. they they less care about affiliation in the jewish uh, streams uh, the other thing is in in our opinion it's not only me many people will say that that there is inflation, inflatia, infla- inflation, inflation of programs uh-huh. <laughs> regarding to the Ethiopian community. I don't know if you know, but today there is 145,000 Ethiopian Jews in Israel, so taking you know, some something like that. And, there, and last time I checked, there is around 387 project, program, organization, name it, that in their title or the way the, in their goal is to uh, improve the integration of the Ethiopian community in Israel, which is crazy. Why you need so many programs and projects 
take the money, collaborate, and do something that, you know, effective to some groups and some, you know, areas. The other thing is what we started talking before, what happened in America. I think, you know, having two members of the Knesset, it's great, but doesn't do anything in the end mm-hmm. of the day. They both really good friends of mine, Penina and Gadi, respect them, and I will vote for them again and again just for, for make sure they're there. But it doesn't do anything in a daily life. We need more Ethiopian teachers, bankers, you know, people that work in in the fields that you as individuals see them every day. Mm-hmm. And then imagine that kids, non-Ethiopian and Ethiopian, will see someone, a black person with authority, they will be more respectful for that community. And for the Ethiopian kids, when they see that, they, they have something to achieve for. They know that they can reach there. But at the moment, what, you know, the random person you will stop in the street will tell you, if you ask them about, you know, what's the, uh, the work for living, most of the Ethiopian community in Israel, they will tell you, cleaners, kitchen, guards, etc. That's why many times people surprised when they see me or other people in the same position. And in the same thing, like in the WhatsApp group, again, it's 141 people that we're there mm-hmm. in a very good position, position. But people doesn't know that. People just assume that we can't even reach those places. Or today there is around 3,000 3, Ethiopian students in, the, in all the inst- academic institutions, which is an amazing mm-hmm. number when you look... That's a higher education. Higher education. higher education. But it's amazing. I think it's an amazing and a very good achievement for a community that comes from a third world country where their parents not only not educated in higher education, but not even educated from elementary school. Right? right? Okay, right. they don't even know how to read and write in Amharit. Right. And to have their kids, our generation, completing first degree and second degree, Zemadhim, wow. it's amazing. But people doesn't even right. aware about it. They just assume that, you know, if our parents not educated, probably I'm not educated as well. So yeah. you think the kids' frustration is from that lack of representation? That if they don't see it in the world, they, they think they don't have a shot? They don't believe in institutions that won't include them, even though the institutions are open? A discussion of the frustration is that people see them again and again the same way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how many times you appear. By the way, yesterday I was doing a salon bite about the story of the Ethiopian community with students... Uh, in Jerusalem, which was very fascinating to see what they know, what what they were surprised to hear from me. But even I, I asked them, when was the last time you saw a commercial in Israel mm-hmm. by an Israeli company with a black person on it? Mm-hmm. All the examples they gave me, it's something that we brought from America. Mm-hmm. Okay, not from here, not Ethiopian. So I told them the only one was, if you remember, 2012, when Cellcom was doing a series of uh, commercial about coming back home. Cellcom connect you with the family. And there was one about soldiers coming back home, someone that coming back from India, the big trip, like very normal stories of the Israeli DNA. And then they took the story of the Ethiopian uh, case and that, what they did in that commercial. They show you, in the film, they show you a plane landing in Ben-Gurion. A group of Ethiopian new immigrants from Ethiopia are coming. Soldiers welcoming the new immigrant with flowers. Selkium connect you back home, which really pissed me off. Why? Because it's the same narrative that everyone here knows, and you just kill you're straight in that narrative that we always a new immigrant 
we always been saved by the government and the soldiers. You're the object, not the subject. So they they could take just you know an Ethiopian lawyer. Lawyer in 2012, you had actors, lawyers, many people from the community that they just normative, you know, just regular person. They could take the regular story of a soldiers coming back home and he's Ethiopian, you know, and they didn't. So that's tell you a lot. Even just just taking that case, it's give you a lot of uh, you know perspective of how the society really see you. So um, Ethiopian Aliyah begins really in the, in the 80s um, with the big uh, operations, then, then really takes off in the 90s, at the same time when the uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union start coming. It, c- can you compare that a little bit? Because um, in terms of where they are, or is there frustration there that they're in a different place and seen differently in Israel than, than the yeah. Ethiopian Jews? I think the big, you know, if if we trying to look like the big differences between those two groups, is first of all that the Russian community, the FSU community, came from a country that it's much closer to what we face in here in Israel. I'm not talking about the political view, but more about like a modern post-industrial video, modern Western country, when mo- the majority of them were educated and enriching higher education, were we not? Uh, even if you look at about, if you even if you look about the Jewish identity, there's like a lot big difference when you know they didn't they didn't feel they holding the Esha Torah, the the light of the Torah, or the light of the Judaism. When our community felt that for the entire years, we were the law, not the lost Jew, but the Jew that really kept the real Torah and not the other Jews. Even we have communication with rabbis in Europe, for example, in the 50s, in the 60s, there's a lot of documents about it. And in the other documents, you can see how the Ethiopian rabbis declare and say and mention again and again that they're so grateful for God that they dare to keep the real Torah, or the Oraita, we call it the Oraita. Um, and then uh, the integration, they both went to absorption center for three years. Okay, every uh, new immigrant that coming to Israel, I don't know if you know, cost us to pay taxes, 300,000 shekel for every person that coming. And, and the idea is that after three years, you invest, you pay back the investment of the government, right? So of course, with the Russian, with all the struggle they have, because they had all, also their struggle of identity, the struggle of, you know, coming as engineer and you becoming a cleaner. Uh, but after three years, they got off the social center and they managed somehow and I believe it also because the reality here wasn't so different from the reality they had there to integrate in the society or to create their own community that was very strong and to build a party, which is very important, a political party. With our which case, they have the numbers for. I mean, they have just so many of them. I mean, more than it's a million point two. It's a lot. So in our case, we it's a group that came really as a minority, not only in numbers, but a minority in our case. And, and again, it's the skin color. And also, after three years in absorption center, it doesn't give you much when you're coming from a, world, a third world country. And three months, you, three years, you need to understand that you have electricity in the house and the house looks different. And you live in a building, not in the village. And, and what do you do with the mikvet, tahara and tumhalek, all those questions that we, as a community we had, it's in the village. And from being a community and around the community, it's around the individual which for the Russian was something that easy to conceptuality. And I feel like, you know, usually we talk about the, the challenge as an immigrant. 
that it's very operative challenge. You know, they, they need to learn a language, they need to learn the new, to gain a new culture. And with every immigration, it's the same challenge. But I usually say, and that's what I also told the student yesterday, that in the Ethiopian case, it was also a very conceptual uh, challenge. Because mm. for the Ethiopian community, when they came to here, what they had in their state of mind is that everyone in Israel is Jewish, Everyone practiced Jewish as we practiced. Mm -hmm. Everyone is black like us because the real Jew were black, okay? And and living as a community, when the community is in the center, not the individual, the elderly, the record of respect that we have is very, very far away from this respect God that the Israelis have. have. You, when you respect always the person with authority or the person that's older than you, even a year or two older than you, even between siblings, and that's mean that the elderly are, uh, and you consider wisdom, not because you uh, gain wisdom from institution, but because you have more, more experience in your life. So the older are more wisdom than you, no matter you know, if they educate or not, when here it's the opposite. Here it's whoever gain education, which is the younger one usually, are having more wisdom there. So imagine all this concept in your mind and you come to Israel, and Bemet, the last thing that you really care is that you have a low income. Because all of a sudden, you're shocked that not everyone is Jewish. The majority is white. <laughs> you're the minority. And the Judaism practicing here, apparently, is the right Judaism, and you having the wrong one. That's what they did. That was the message. That was the perspective of the yeah. religious leadership. So I feel like when you look at those as a challenge, it's not... It's a... It's a, it's a, it's a a challenge okay, a more more about values, values. A more about the concept and the state of mind less than the thing that is you know easy to mm. uh, to complete it in three years of uh, absorption center yes. which is not right. in the end of the day it's not skill it's not skill oriented the for most Zulim, it's skill oriented you have mm. to skills to get along in society here it was a real paradigm shift in your entire in your rural to urban, it's yeah. just everything. It's a total yeah, paradigm. When, you know, and after three years, you also need to find a job, which also another challenge when you, everyone was agriculture, and to to be more skills in computers and and you know and tech and cetera, it's hard, and you need also to know to be oriented in reading and writing. So, for example, this is a research I read, but if you're coming from a different country as an immigrant and you already have an orientation of reading and writing, it's easier mm -hmm. to, get, to, to learn a new language. But you're transferring, you're not building. Bidiuk, bidiuk, exactly. You educators, I can tell, you understand. <laughs> but coming from a place where you've never been in a class, you never learn how to write and read, how can you really learn a new language? It's harder. So to give the same group, the same timeline, to integrate to the society is wrong. It's not It's not reasonable to, mm -hmm. to think or to believe that we will pay back this investment the way the Russian or other communities did, because it's just impossible. Well, I mean, I mean, maybe that goes back to what you said before, and maybe it's happened in a weird way, but all of a sudden this proliferation of programs for Ethiopians has come out of that, the realization that they need a lot of, a lot of different things were needed for this community for all these different reasons. What you're saying is well meant, but not... <laughs> still, totally right, but still, it's 387 programs, and it's a lot. Yeah. And they not even, not, not all of them, but some of them that doesn't even want to communicate with each other because each of them want to have their own program and run it. And again, I'm sorry to keep going back to the protest this summer, but people were really, I think, shaken. And, and part of it came from this, 
this sense of n- no faith in the institutions. But I do think police profiling and the police, I think that the Ethiopian Israelis really do have a problem relating to Israeli police. What do you think can be done about that? If What can we all do to... First of all, it is happening. The police, there is police profiling. Palmore Committee uh, that was uh, gathering two years ago when there was a case of Ethiopian soldier that was in uh, encountering with two policemen. So then they launched this committee and they found out that almost, if I'm not wrong, around 70% of the cases, the criminal cases that opened for young Ethiopian, it's something that could be kilo finished at the moment without opening a case criminal. It's kilo. It's about the everything because he didn't listen to the policeman. They open a, a criminal case, which would they would not do to a white person, mm. okay? And they also do so that there's a lot of encounters that are very violent when it gets to the Ethiopian uh, youth, and it's also with the Arabs in Israel, unfortunately, and also with some neighborhood with Russian population in mm. Israel. That's what the committee, the report of the committee, say. Okay, so when you look this and look the data, and you know how you feel when you look, you walk around, you understand that there's something wrong about the police and the way they look at you, right? And even the chief of the police two years ago says, when he was interviewed about it, he said something. When someone asked him, "How come policemen encounter so many cases with Ethiopian kids?" And he says something terrible, but he says something like, "You know, when a person see." a person from a specific group, from a specific ethnic group. And my last thought, you can't uh, fight it. There is some assumption getting into your mind because of this group. And it's happening in every place in the world because they because the immigrants... He's saying that racism is just built in, there's nothing you can do about it. No, but he said that you can't blame the policeman. Right. He's saying but you, the police are going to be racist, and that's just the way it is. Look, that's what he said, and people was, of course, shouting out on him that how he can say that as a chief of police. But the Palmo committee, one of the, the good things they did is that the committee start to uh, supervise and uh, and look into all the public institution. And first of all, they nominate, like, uh, uh, the same way you have a person in your office for a... Uh, I don't mean yacht. forgot how you say that. Uh, sexual harassment. Yeah, someone that you can reach out when there is a sexual harassment. So they ask to appoint person for a case of race in the institution. Any race, not only the Ethiopian. So, so if you talked about some before, you say we mentioned something about look at the a national issue, a national challenge. So the case with these Ethiopian soldiers in 2016 or 15, and the Palmo committee actually opened up as we say, Pandora box, open up something bigger than us. It's not only the Ethiopian community. What we do in Israel regarding to race, there's so many cases of race and no one take care of them. So that's what they did. Another thing they did is in the last two years, they recruited a thousand Ethiopian policemen, mm-hmm. which is good for communication. They also start uh, uh, rewriting something, some documents in Amharit for the for the parents. A lot of the cases they saw that a kid uh, in uh, facing a policeman, the parents doesn't know what was the case. Mm. They don't have anything translated, mm. and then uh, they don't have money for a good lawyer. So he automatically go go to jail for a couple of days, for even a day, and that can rule your entire life mm. as a, as a, as a teen, as a as a child. When you take the same case with white people, I will say for for this case, uh, if they have a good lawyer, he's out that moment. 
Uh, and usually they send them not to a gel, they will send them to Letipool to take care of the problem. So when you look at that, you understand that there is really a poli- like very bad police profiling with this age group, with this group, how this community. Uh, I forgot, there was another thing that I wanted to say, but I forgot. Well, um, Ken, it's very, and I have to say that it's, for me, it was very, very painful, personally, uh, when I start reading the Palmore uh, report and start reading different cases and examples that people start sharing on Facebook, I couldn't believe that there is people in institution. I'm not talking. I'm not saying that the institution have that we have a, a, a race policy because it's not about a race policy. But there is ignorant people that are in charge of some policies in the institution, an institution in Israel. That they act like that. It was very hard. You were surprised or you were sad? No, I was very sad. You were also surprised? or? I was surprised to see how big it is. It's not one person here and one person there. How, Kilo, a lot of people, that's how they make a decision on you and they have responsibility on the person. And it's a cache. And I, I remember, when, you know, usually when people ask me if I had a case of race, I usually say, no, not really on, on the table. It usually was under, underneath the table, like people were surprised to see me, etc. But then only lately, <laughs> I realized that I actually faced something like that with a policeman. But back then, I didn't, I didn't put it in the, you know, in the title of police profiling. I just thought it's a stupid policeman. Mm-hmm. Okay, I went to see a friend of mine who's also Ethiopian, that his family managed to buy a house in a very nice place in Rishon Lezion, where it's guarded, and you know, and they have this car, mm-hmm. the 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 guard car that is kill uh, patrol that doing the patrol in the building, and we were sitting with a hookah in the in the garden of the building at 3 a.m. Okay, and they were like, and they were traveling with the car, and the the guards came out and he asked us what we doing there, <laughs> and my friend told him I live here, and he's like, yeah, bullshit. Don't mm-hmm. bullshit me, you can't live here. It's like, no, no, I'm, my parents live here. We live here and she visit me. And that's why we're sitting downstairs. I mean, I'm allowed to be here. You're like, no, you're not allowed to be here because you can't live here. Something mm-hmm. like that. And we thought, it's like, stupid guy. Why you think we not? So the guy told him, you want to see that I live here? Come with me. And he re- really, really came with us to the you know, fourth wow. Can to the fourth floor. We knocked on the door. We wake up his mom, even though we had a key, because he didn't believe us. We live there, and he didn't even bother to apologize. He just told us, "Okay, next time, try not to be late outside. Too, too late outside." But you know, I never. I never uh, give any importance to this case, or so it is a police profiling. But today, you know, after reading everything, I realized that actually this policeman that saw us, he just automatically assumed, and it was 10 years ago, or maybe 12 years ago, that we can't afford ourselves to live there. So that's given the right, the obligation to stop us. I think it's, it's horrible. Sorry to put you down. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, but that that is the frustration you speak about. That's still ten years later or longer has not is not gone away. That that that's what the younger generation now is is experiencing, and maybe um, the the feeling that they have the security that they're Israeli 
they're able to take out this frustration, uh, maybe not always in the most positive ways, but the positive side of that is that they don't maybe feel that self-consciousness that the older generation felt or maybe your generation still feeling having come from abroad. Um, well, no, it's, I mean, it's, and it's definitely not positive. Like that violence is not going to help no. move things forward. It, it only reinforces people's, like I heard a guy on my block and thank God everybody else. I started, I got really angry. He said some really gross things. And, and, and I don't talk so much politics in my neighborhood, but that one, I, I said, you can't talk that way. And all the other guys in my block were all on my side, thank God. But I couldn't believe that in 2019, somebody was saying really gross, you know, like, oh, they should go back to Ethiopia. So, so I'm not defending him, obviously, but I am saying that, uh, that that violence didn't help the cause. No, it didn't. Uh, I don't think those kids, and I'm saying Bechavana kids, was planning to end up like that. But I think the anger, the frustration, the lack of feeling belonging, all of a sudden from being an Israeli, they're born here, and you first Israeli, they become more Ethiopian, or feeling that the Ethiopian side is stronger than them. That's what makes them to be, I'm not justified in any violence. Right. And I was in the protest in, in Tel Aviv in the beginning for two hours. Nothing like that was there. Well, for the um, most part, it was peaceful. It was blocking traffic, driving, but that's a protest. When I would start driving back home for the kids, an hour later, when you know 8, 8 p.m. the news started, they started being more violent. Are you optimistic? Can, me odd. Why? Because, again, as I told you before, if you look at the data and you look from where we came from, I think we are achieving a lot in, 30, in 35 years. For the community that came from so many lack, you know, lack of knowledge, lack of, you know, uh, communication with the modern life, etc., uh, to be able to be in different positions today, to be with a higher education, to get out from those neighborhoods, I think can, and I'm optimistic. I feel like we can do better, but I feel it's also a macro and bigger question of our society, like how we observe diversity in Israel, how we see the other. And we don't have those conversations much. Like even the term of Jew of color, it's, we don't have something like that in Hebrew. People doesn't have those in conversation. Uh, and we, we need more conversation with each other. We don't. So you think in Israel we have to be more explicit and open about talking about these issues? Can we're not doing it enough. Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so awful because like, for an American who makes Aliyah, like the feeling of going from being a minority to being part of the majority is such an awesome part about what Aliyah is. And so to, when you think about like what it means to move here and still be a minority, yeah. even though like what, you're not, you're just, there's no difference. Well, you're, you're in the majority, but that people treat it, it's very hard. I think you, you describe it really correctly. You're still a minority and you're struggling to get out from this minority. I met a phenomenal Arab woman once and traveled as a speakers together. And she told me, you know, Plina, we the same because we bought from the shulaim, shala shulaim, shala shulaim. In, this, in the Israel society. The side, the side. The side, uh, the side of this, with the minority of the minority because we both women. And then you Ethiopian, black, and I'm Arab and Palestinian, and I'm coming from a village dialect. She called the village dialect Tel Carmel, and you're coming from a village in Ethiopia. And the struggle—it's something that the people can't understand. That, but she also says something very smart. Dafka, because we're from the Shulam of the Shulam Dafka, because we're from the side of the side, we get this privilege of having a perspective that it's very unique to us. You can see things that other doesn't have the privilege to see it because. 
they are elite or they're not even struggling. And it's give you a lot of, I think, a lot of power and strength to continue what you do and, and, and be able to help hold this conversation and not being terrified to talk with someone that is look older than you because you, you yourself is another. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective and wisdom and insight with us. I think, like you're saying, we all have to talk about these things and hash them out more and more. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you, Alan. Thank you. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Makom Israel Teachers Lounge podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and pass it along to your friends. Thank you.